Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Channel 33 podcast. My name is Danny Chow. I am a writer and editor at TheRinger.com. And joining me is Katie Baker, a staff writer at The Ringer. Hello, Katie. Hi, Danny. How are you? I'm great. It's Food Week at The Ringer, and the reason why Katie and I are here is because we've written two huge stories on TheRinger.com. My story is up right now, and Katie's will be up later in the week. So we've put together special audio treatment of our stories, and... Katie's took a more micro approach, and I took a more macro approach. Yeah, I sat down with the four Lopez siblings that own Gilligetsa Restaurant in Koreatown here in L.A., and I think you'll definitely be able to um, feel as if you're in the room with, with these, uh, these funny and really interesting uh, family. Yeah, and I, I talked to a Stanford professor who now runs a company trying to save the entire planet from food crisis. And a couple of chefs as well. Danny's out there hanging out with the mad scientists. Anyway, here's my story. What would it take for you to give up meat entirely? It's a question I think about from time to time. You know, my my family is a house divided. My dad and my brother are carnivores, and my mom, for religious reasons, is vegetarian. I've heard my dad say recently that he'd never be able to take on the lifestyle my mom has chosen. I tell myself that I'd be able to go vegan for months at a time, but I'm not really sure. You know, some of my strongest memories in life revolve around meat one way or another. For instance, when I was four years old, I was walking through a grocery store parking lot when I suddenly realized I wasn't holding my mom's hand. And in that moment of realization, I was sideswiped by a car. I don't remember much about the incident or the ambulance ride or the hospital visit for that matter. But I do remember exactly where my mom took me as soon as I got out. We made a beeline for Burger King where I got a kid's meal and a hamburger. Have it your way. Have it your way. Have it your way at Burger King. And somehow, eating that burger seemed to make everything else feel okay. But you know what? Other than the whole I got hit by a car thing, I, I don't think my story is all that unique. We as Americans tend to prescribe burgers for every occasion, especially for kids. They're the most quintessential American food. In fact, we eat billions of burgers each year. The late food writer Josh Ozersky once called it the most powerful food object in the industrialized world. But as we grow older and more perceptive, the downsides of eating all those burgers become harder and harder to ignore. We know about how it contributes to heart disease. We know about the unethical nature of the meat industry, but what we might not fully grasp is how large a role it plays in the biggest crisis of our time, the health of our planet. For example, it takes about three and a half gallons of water to produce roughly a pound of lettuce. It takes nearly 450 gallons to produce a pound of beef. That's over 125 times as much. Look, we have a lot of cows on our planet, over a billion at any given time. These cows need a lot of room to graze and a lot of grass to feed on, and all those cows are burping and farting, and they're releasing a whole lot of methane into the atmosphere, and that all of that contributes a lot to climate change. When all those problems come together, it can just be really easy to tune it all out, follow our bliss, and watch the world burn. But doing so comes with a side order of guilt. No one wants to think about how the burger they just ate played a role in destroying the planet. Luckily, as things tend to go nowadays, there's a Silicon Valley-based startup called Impossible Foods trying to change the way we think about meat. 
Our mission is to completely replace animals in the global food system by making all the foods that we get today from animals in a much more sustainable way directly from plant ingredients. That's Pat Brown. He's the founder and CEO of Impossible Foods, who is in the midst of reverse engineering the meats we love without harming any animal. Actually, without any animals at all. About six years ago, during a sabbatical from his job as a biochemistry professor at Stanford, he realized that the way our food system works is simply unsustainable. He says that the writing was on the wall. What I saw and and many other people who have looked at it have come to the same conclusion is that the way that we're producing meat today using animals as a technology for, um, you know, turning plant biomass into meat is the most destructive technology on Earth today by a wide margin. Despite this, Brown says the problem is being completely overlooked. People are talking about how to address the major environmental problems in the world they will kind of grudgingly acknowledge that uh, animal farming is at the top of the list. And yet, it's just not part of the discussion when we're talking about solutions. So how does Brown intend on solving the problem? With a veggie burger. No, seriously. The company calls it the Impossible Burger. You may have already heard about it as the vegan burger that bleeds. But what specifically sets the Impossible Burger apart from other plant-based burgers is not just that it looks like meat. It's that it's scientifically engineered to behave like meat, too. The Impossible Burger is packaged raw and can be cooked as rare or well done as you want. It bleeds and it even smells like meat. Impossible Foods isn't just trying to make the best meat substitute. It's trying to redefine meat entirely. Okay, you you may be wondering, how does a burger made up of a mash of wheat, potato, and coconut oil add up to meat? Well, the Impossible Burger has a secret ingredient. It's called heme a molecule present in all living things, but especially abundant in meat. It's what allows blood to carry oxygen, it's what gives blood its metallic flavor, and it's what makes blood red. Scientists have known all of this for a while. But what Brown and Impossible Foods have discovered is that heme is also what makes meat taste and smell like meat when it's cooked. That was the game changer. Because Impossible Foods isn't in the food business just to cater to vegetarians and vegans. The company's real target is the carnivores the kind of meat eaters who might otherwise turn their nose at even the thought of eating something vegan. Getting the world to see that animals aren't the only source of meaty flavor is the key. The power of heme could be what makes Impossible Foods' mission a success. And so there it is. The magic ingredient that will save the world was inside all of us all along. But before we talk about saving the world, let's talk about how these burgers actually taste. Because I fall directly into the demographic Brown and Impossible Foods are trying to win over. I'm just a guy who loves eating a good hamburger. But getting your hands on these things is not easy. The Impossible Burger isn't available in grocery stores, and you can only find it in seven restaurants across the country. Fortunately, three of them are in California, and as an L.A. native, I figured making the trek wouldn't be that difficult. My first stop was at Crossroads Kitchen in West Hollywood, where they model their burger after In-N-Out, the quintessential West Coast-style burger. If it weren't for how the meat tended to fall apart, it wouldn't be that hard to convince yourself that this was an actual beef burger. From there, I took a short trip to San Francisco to see what their restaurants had to offer. At Coxcomb, a meat-centric restaurant, their version creates a high-end pub burger experience with a thicker, medium-rare burger. The sear on the outside of the burger was so intense that it created a crispy crust on the exterior, which I'd never really experienced on a beef burger before. It didn't quite taste like meat, but I can't say I minded much. 
For my last stop, I went to Jardinier, where they cook the burger much differently. There, the chef cooks the patty until it reaches medium well, so it doesn't get that kind of tender richness of a medium-rare patty, but they do make up for it with smashed avocado and caramelized onions. The most incredible thing about Jardinier might be how they've managed the hype. They have a ticketing system. You have to show up at the restaurant right when they open to secure a voucher, but you can't actually order it until a couple hours later. That hype extends to both coasts. At David Chang's Momofuku Nishi in New York, lines wrap around the block before the restaurant even opens for lunch. Nishi was one of the first restaurants to serve the Impossible Burger last summer, which might seem a little strange. Chang is a guy who loves meat. I mean, the guy has an entire burger manifesto published online, and his Instagram account is full of sensual steak carving videos that are barely safe for work. So why is he promoting a veggie burger? I'm sure myself and people that have been following Momofuku would find it a little bit odd uh, that we uh, would champion such a thing. But the reality is, is there's a bottleneck of really good meat, whether it be chicken or beef. It would be foolish if we didn't worry about that. And that bottleneck of meat is exactly what has driven Chang to search for alternatives. In a way, it shows how his life has come around full circle. He's lorded over the Momofuku line of restaurants for the last 13 years, but his embrace of the Impossible Burger is something that would have happened even in his younger days. See, veggie burgers aren't new to Chang. They're practically all he ate while he was studying abroad in London. He remembers those days well. That was during an th- era where there was mad cow disease. There was like no beef anywhere. So I remember my mom actually sending me beef jerky. As like, just like, because like beef was just so expensive. It wasn't like I wanted to eat veggie burgers, but it just was like the only thing that was available. And the veggie burgers there were like really good because of uh, Hindu culture that's been uh, assimilated in the British food scene. So you could get a pretty good veggie burger at McDonald's or just about anywhere. And uh, in the flat where we're living, that's pretty much what everyone ate. I mean, it had nothing to do with other than mad cow disease. Chang knows what it's like to live a life without beef, and it's something maybe all of humanity will have to reckon with one day. And so Impossible Foods offers a solution to break from the cycle of beef before it's too late. It's an imperfect product, but one that's good enough to give some open-minded meat eaters an alternative. It might not be perfect, but it's also not a finished product either. The science is constantly improving, and one day it might be close to impossible to distinguish from actual ground beef. Chang describes this as its touring test. At what point does AI fool a human being that it's not a computer? At what point can a human being not be able to distinguish that this is not real beef? It's enough to wonder. If Impossible Foods accomplishes the mission it's set out on, at what point do we give it a real chance? And at what point do we give up on animal meat entirely? Hey guys, welcome back. We just heard from Danny Chow about the Impossible Burger. Um, And we're going to switch gears now and hear a little bit about the Lopez family. So Katie, what was your inspiration behind bringing this Gilagetza family up? Well, when I started looking into the restaurant, I saw that there was a very vibrant and interesting family behind it. Um, A family that came to the U.S. from Mexico in 1994 and um, has been running this restaurant in the same place in Koreatown ever since. So w- wanted to meet the people and uh, behind it and hear their story. Beautiful. So without further ado, here's the Lopez family of Gilgetza. 
Hi, my name is Paulina Lopez. My name is Fernando Lopez. I am Elizabeth Lopez. My name is Brisa Lopez, and I am the co-owner of Galagatza Restaurant. We were founded in 1994 by my father and mother, Maria and Fernando Lopez. And all the businesses now are run by myself and my three siblings. It's a family restaurant. We like people to believe that when they're sitting in the middle of this place, they feel like they're in the street in the Socalo and have the flavors and the smell that what you would get when if you were in a market in Oaxaca. We are famous for our moles, for our mezcal selection. Mole is a lot of cultures have this really big flavor dish, you know, like curry or like barbecue, where it's just bold flavor. But mole, it just has so many flavors and a good mole is very well balanced. We don't really eat mole in an everyday thing in Oaxaca. It's all about being together because you only eat mole traditionally in big events. So you would only have mole if like in a funeral or a wedding or something very big. Every time you go in Oaxaca, like you said, they give you so much food that they actually give you buckets so you can take the mole home with you. So I remember always my grandma would make me carry the bucket of mole every day. And then we would have to eat mole for like three or four days after the wedding or whatever it was. It's everything from plantains, bread and nuts, seeds, uh, a bunch of chiles. And every chile is prepared differently. These are recipes you can find any if you go to Oaxaca in any town. Anywhere you go visit your grandma, your aunt, this is what she will be cooking for you. You sit down and you're a little kid and they give you a basket of bread and like a really small cup of chocolate. <laughs> and then uh, and then they give you the first dish and the second dish and they bring out the mole once you're already full. And then you start digging in and then you, you just a party all around you. There's live music. There's your, your whole family's around telling stories and laughing. And I think that the feeling of eating mole is what we want to replicate here in, at, the, at the restaurant. That's a mezcal is too. You make it for the people around you to share, to celebrate, um, you know, and that is Gelegetza. You know, mezcal doesn't really get aged in barrels. It gets aged in the 7 to 20 years that it's been growing through different seasons, through different weather, through different people walking by, you know, and and being able to be part of people's conversations and seeing in like the plants, seeing kids grow around and all those feelings go inside and all, that's what gives the mezcal the deep flavor it has. Mezcal is part of who we are. I just love it so much. I mean, the plant, the agave plant, it's a female plant. It's got reproductive parts. It has children. And it's a plant that grows for anywhere from up to 20 years before it's sacrificed to make this liquid. And the tremendous amount of respect that goes behind the craft is incredible. My father was a mezcal maker and my grandpa was a mezcal maker. Several of my uncles are mezcal makers. Several friends that I have are mezcal makers. I mean, I got drunk of a mezcal the first time when I was seven years old. No joke. We were one of the first restaurants in L.A. to carry a mezcal. So it's like, yeah, I like mezcal before it was cool. <laughs> I think because we have such a deep rooted love for family and such a deep connection to what that means to us it transcends when you walk into this place and it transcends in the food and and the way it's served and, and the environment surrounding it and I, I think that just comes from our hearts Galagetta has several meanings it's such a huge word you know that has it's just as complex as a definition so to the court you know it's a Zapotec world word and if you had a Zapotec dictionary, it would mean to share, it reciprocity, to give and receive. Uh, on the secondary level, it's also a festival that is celebrated uh, every year, the last two Mondays of July in the city. 
and it's a way for all the communities to come to the city and share their culture and love through dance and through food and it's the biggest uh, cultural festival in, in, in the country in Mexico this is the least we can give you know we can give part of our culture we can give back our food we can give back our traditions and it's Argelaguetza to Los Angeles Okay, that was the Lopez family of Gelligetza Restaurant, and we can't thank them enough for letting us barge into their place and eat all their mole and maybe drink a little bit of their mezcal. Yes, and I would like to thank Pat Brown of Impossible Foods, David Chang for taking the time to talk, and Scott Jones for showing us around the kitchen. You can find Danny's story on The Impossible Burger up on TheRinger.com right now. My story on Gelligetza will be up later this week. And for our food week, we'll have new stories going up um, all week long. These particular stories were written and reported by Danny Chow and myself, Katie Baker, and with the wonderful production work of Zach Mack. Thanks, Zach. Check out all of our stories at TheRinger.com, and we'll see you next time. Today's episode is brought to you by Achievement Oriented, The Ringer's gaming podcast hosted by Ben Lindbergh and Jason Concepcion. You can listen to new episodes every Friday by subscribing to the Channel 33 podcast on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts.